The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 43 of the Ascent of Board Games, where us nerdy-ass board gamers get together and talk about board games, like it says in the title. I'm Brian. I'm here with all of my friends again, as usual. Hello. That's Joe being thrilled as heck to be alive. Always. <laughs> it's morning. This is Frank, who's awake. I had Mountain Dew. It's my friend. I'm two coffees in, and I'm still feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> And that's Jason not introducing himself. That's right. What is going on? It's here more fun to have other people do it for me. Exactly. I'm Michael. Hey, everybody. We're going to be talking about some games this morning. We are. And we're going to talk about games that Jason might like because he can pick up coffee and deliver it into his <laughs> mouth. Ooh. <laughs> Apparently, I'm bad at that game because I'm still tired. <laughs> pick up and deliver games are a pretty widespread genre, as it turns out. In short, you get a thing from somewhere on the board, and we're being fairly specific about that because there are some games that have been classified as pick up and deliver that just aren't. Frank has been trying to convince us that a train racing game is a pick up and deliver game because in the fiction of the game, you're transporting goods, but you're just moving your train. That's not pick up and deliver. Railway Rivals is the game. Train Raiders is the better version of the game. <laughs> We're still not talking about it because you're not picking up a delivery. For the purposes of our podcast, need to be more than just fluff text. It's true. It's true. Jeff Carr, I need you to chime in here. Come on. We need a train games episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, you Mike, you, if you want to that. hear a train game episode. But <laughs> Featuring Mike and Frank and possibly Jeff Carr's. Frank and I know. <laughs> We're in. There are a lot of things that have been classified on Board Game Geek with the pick up and deliver mechanism that we don't really agree with. Either it's a very small part of the game or it's a very generous interpretation. One of the things they list is Black Orchestra, which is a game about assassinating Hitler in World War II. And I think functionally what you're doing is picking up bullets and delivering them to Hitler's head. Yeah, pretty I much. Mean, that is which, a very satisfying which game. Which sort of counts, it. but... <laughs> I mean, you don't start with any bullets. You do need to go pick them up. That's true. It's true. It's true. We're going to go way back in the mists of time to the ancient year of 1888 for the first game that uh, we think is legitimately a pick-up-and-deliver game. It is called The Game of Robbing the Miller. It is a two-player game from 1888. The designer is unknown, and it was published by McLaughlin Brothers. This is sort of a two overlapping trails of squares, and the object is for each player to get to the other end of the trail, steal some grain markers from the miller at that end, and bring them back home. It's a roll and move or a spin and move in this case. It's a two-headed spinner uh, for the movement. And so you can either move one guy the total or two guys, one from one end of the arrow and one of one of the other. You go over there, you grab a stack of grain and bring it back to your home base. Yay, fun. I I love in the descriptions how the implements, which are what we would call the the components, include one large red man and one small flat red man, (laughs) one large blue man and one small flat blue man, six yellow counters for bags of grain, and an indicator. So does the game end when the Miller starves to death? Is that the end game condition? <laughs> probably. Okay. Probably. Then he too turns to crime and uh, it's all down. <laughs> that, that's for this follow-up game, the Miller's Revenge. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It just goes to show that robbery has consequences. The game is it's over you. <laughs> when your supply has dried out and is now dead. I assume the, the large man is eating all the food that the flat man is. <laughs> yeah, the flat man is the surf who has to go and steal and carry the sacks of grain. Ooh. We can make a lot of social commentary out <laughs> of right, this game. I love, this. I love it. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because that two-headed spinner mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of the movement from Colosseum. Once you get the second dice, where it's like you can split up that movement oh, yeah, in Colosseum. Yeah. yeah, it's been used in other games. I haven't seen it used with a spinner. You don't since, see but. it very often, but it does always lead to interesting decisions being made. Yeah. yeah, and rolling moves that have multiple choices are actually better than well, just honestly, the goose monopoly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, backgammon does that too. You totally, know, you can move one piece twice or two pieces once. Yeah. All right, go backgammon. And there are a lot of roll and move mechanics in these early games. Just saying that they're not awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's how games were in I the agree, dark times. Frank. A well done roll and move game is great. Yeah, so a, we're not talking about those today. A yeah. bad roll and move game is. 
criminal. Totally. It's going to be a little scattershot for the older games, since I could probably talk for hours. But our next game is Mine a Million, 1965, designed by somebody, but eventually sold to Waddington's, where they eventually renamed it as The Business Game, because... That'll, that'll get people buying it. <laughs> Waddington isn't allowed to game. name anything interesting. <laughs> okay, but wait a minute. Is that the worst name board game ever? No. 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 There's worse, but it's close. I hope it comes in a little briefcase. That'd be the best. <laughs> now, a big old long Parker Brothers box. This game is one of those that's worth looking at. It's different. So there is some roll and move. Basically, you have a bunch of oil wells at one end. You own some of those oil wells. And you spend actions on your dice. You roll and you get like one to four actions a turn. You can use that to produce oil. Yay. Oil wells are not mines. mines. Oh, wait, you're producing tin. I'm oh. so oh. sorry. Oh, wow. Oh. Wow, that's tin very wells. different. Totally different. <laughs> tin wells. Yeah. Your little oil wells. I swear they're Derek's. Okay. Derek's. And they're producing tin. tin. at the top. Was the business game Derek's. rethemed? Maybe the business game rethemed it. Nah, <laughs> whatever. It's tin mining. And then you have a bunch of lorries. They look like little trucks. Yes, that's what the that British call them. A, a lorry is, yeah. Check, can confirm. Do they line up in a queue? <laughs> to get some petrol. Yeah, totally. Uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk about the queues later. And then you deliver them to the river ports where you can put your tin pyramids. There are little pyramids representing the tin. You can put them on barges. So basically, if you sell them at a port, you get a little bit of money. If you then have your own barges where you bought and rented barges, you can drag them down to the seaports where they're worth quite a bit more money. And then if you're at a seaport, eventually you can afford renting and leasing on big container barges, which can carry them across the ocean, where you get a ton of money. Okay, so I'm hearing... Your trucks take them to the boats. The boats take them to the Other airport. Boats. The big air- boats. Oh, big the, boats. The big boats. Big boats. Yeah. The big boats take them across the ocean to the airport. Where do they go from there? The moon. Oh, to yourself. the moon. Yeah. Interesting. The moon has a high demand for tin. <laughs> the game actually just continues into high frontier. <laughs> <laughs> it's an elaborate pregame. <laughs> yeah, so this is pick up and deliver and deliver and deliver and deliver. 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 <laughs> the things that are kind of stunning here are all that logistics and everything. First of all, you only can leash all your transport. So you're paying every turn for every piece of transport you've got. That can get just unnerving. If it's got stuff on it, you're going to pay for it. So it's, and of course, you only get paid when you deliver it. Problem number two is all of these spaces have blocks and you have to split your movement among all these types of vehicles. So if there's somebody sitting on the road in front of you in a lorry and you've got an ocean vessel waiting that you're paying a fortune for to get some tin on it, someone's just going to leave their lorry there on the road blocking you. It is the the most vicious game you have ever seen. There's some real world parallels right now too. Interesting. Yeah. And an amazingly sophisticated game for 1965. And then the cutthroat tin market. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. And highway robbery and having to negotiate with people, please move your lorry. Oh, my God. Look, I'll pay you to move your lorry. Huh. Yeah, it's it's a surprising game and And really good. Unlike robbing the miller, you're actually having to also produce your resource. Correct. Yes. It's a game that is ethically correct because you're producing things through the sweat of your brow, not stealing them from the man who has done it the hard way. (laughs) But that feels like a gigantic step forward as far as uh, pickup and delivery goes. It's 80 years. So yeah, yeah, there's some more stuff in there. Over the course of 80 years, somebody looked at Robin Miller and said, what if, what if I'm the Miller. <laughs> and then just can kind of our scattershot through the history. There are a ton of games here. We have to mention Empire Builder. Train game. Oh, whatever. This is the game that built Mayfair. Okay. Designed by Darwin Bromley, you know, CEO, primary god of Mayfair games from 1982. This is your first crayon rail game. Uh, actually, no, it's not your first crayon rail game because that would be railway rivals that wouldn't let me put on. You're not delivering It was a game about racing empty trains across country. <laughs> right, right, right. Anyway, Empire Builder consists of basically two phases. One, you're drawing new rails on the board in crayon, <laughs> as was meant to happen for a train game. Then your various cities will produce things and they can be delivered for certain amounts of money by moving your train and basically carry those goods. I do know that crayon rail games become a whole thing unto themselves, right? So is oh, this totally, yeah. kind and of the beginning of that? Empire Builder is the reason. Yeah. 
Railway Rivals was Game of the Year, well-known in Britain and Europe. Damp Frost actually was a Game of the Year, Mm. which was Railway Rivals. But this cemented, I mean, first of all, Mayfair kept printing different Empire Builders. It became Iron Dragon, etc. I will admit I actually played a Crayon Rail game, and it was Iron Dragon. And you hated it. it. Uh, Because there were dragons. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But yeah, Iron Dragon is a great game. Next. Next, we're going to talk about Merchants of Venus, published by Avalon Hill and then eventually Fantasy Flight, because they apparently publish everything, and uh, designed by Richard Hamblin. The way it was written was very confusing. Richard Hamblin and Robert A. It's for the two different editions, Joe. The Fantasy Flight includes two games, one of which is a kind of rework, heavy reworking, but it does include the original game because it didn't need any changes. Mm -hmm. And Richard Hamblin's a god, so that's just... So in Merchants of Venus, you're a merchant and you're flying around the galaxy, picking up things and delivering them. The game has a very interesting movement system I like a lot. Oh, yeah. Which I remember definitely all of. I remember liking it. I can't remember. So uh, basically in the movement system, you roll, you can pick up engines that let you skip certain color spaces, first of all. So you can suddenly start moving fast on your little roll. It is a roll and move, but really sophisticated. Mm -hmm. There's also gates. You can roll multiple dice and, you know, have like a two dice move. But depending on what die you're moving on, these gates will determine which way you come out of a particular space. So it means, you know, it's like, oh, if I'm moving on a four, I'm just going to go into this cloud of crap of asteroids and have to burn my way out. I like that at the start of your turn, you set your speed and you either land somewhere or you spend all of your speed points and you cannot stop. You've already decided (laughs) how far you're going. Totally. And if something happens unexpected, too bad. (laughs) That's on you. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things about this game, right, is like there's functionally nothing. The board starts relatively empty besides some contact cards and all the spaces. And when you get there, you discover what race is there and what things they have for sale and what things they want to buy. We were talking about Zaya, which almost made this list, but we kind of determined was like from purely the pickup and deliver mechanic is kind of a spiritual successor to Merchants of Venus, right? Zaya has a bunch more going for it. She has all the 4X game components. Merchants really doesn't have that. It's really just roll a move and discovery. And discovery, yeah. yeah. You yeah. can pirate other ships and attack them, mm-hmm. other player ships. And even then, that's an option depending on yeah. which version you're playing. Also, best punny game name of the early days of game design. Oh, yeah, totally. Merchants of Venus is mm-hmm. best. Yeah. And there's quite a few just amazing puns in the game. I'd like to play that sometime. I've seen it played a bunch of times. I've never actually gotten to play it myself. Yeah. One of the big secrets to winning the basic game is finding the loop. Basically, mm-hmm. you, you know, finding like a three or four stop loop where you can sell everything for a profit as you go. Yeah, th- and they actually want it from the other. But you have to like hopefully get your ship upgraded enough to exploit that loop fast enough. Whenever you buy stuff in Mercy Venus, you always make some profit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are functionally there's like the normal sale. There's the we wanted sale. There's a we don't want it price, right? And yeah. even though we don't want a price is a profit Technically, it's just not nearly as big as the we totally want a price. It's not enough in a competitive game to get you where you need to be. Yeah, and your ship can get damaged and abused enough that that's not a profit. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Fantasy Flight did a really good redesign of this game that just looks really good. I mean, Fantasy Flight is notorious. If nothing else, they make very pretty games. For making very pretty games. Yeah, all the components are very pretty. Like, the board on the second printing is gorgeous. It's a very nice board. And they included a rulebook for both what they call the standard game as well as the classic game. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the the new game, it does not look great. Well, (laughs) I haven't played it, but... If nothing else, it does follow suit with Fantasy Flight's inability to print any board game without two (laughs) rulebooks. Sure. (laughs) True. That's their goal, ultimately. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to normalize it. Right, exactly. Frank. Wow, I'm just talking all the things splatter, yeah. We had bus down on here, which isn't quite pickup and delivery but it kind of is but i think it's more interesting to talk about roads and boats which is 1999 splatter spelling by jerome duman and Joyce warsinger i'm screwing that up really yeah totally i'm impressed roads and boats is the epic oh my god if you want some detail in your pickup and deliver games here's your detail is this like the four hour pickup and deliver or just detail? four to six to Ooh, eight wow two. okay four hour per player oh, god. you start off with like a goose 
or some geese and maybe a sheep. <laughs> and there's a fox and you have to get them to the other side of the river. This already sounds like a much different game than I was expecting. And then you have to basically get all the things together and use it to build a barn, which builds cattle, which builds eventually somewhere down the right. It's like rockets and shit. So this is like the guy who traded a matchbox car for 87 yeah. different things and eventually got a Porsche. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a gigantic tech tree of buildings, buildings that produce new things that you need to produce the next thing that produces the next thing. The thing about roads and boats is that production happens immediately. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff just kind of hangs out on the space until somebody picks it up. So that stuff that's there, anyone who kind of comes along and picks it up can. No problem. Oh, look, some tin. Yeah, it's <laughs> just lying it's on the ground. on the floor. You know, mm -hmm. community ownership and yeah. everything. And yeah. And so you're not building your own stuff. You're building stuff that eventually everyone will probably use, which is pretty nice. But the big problem is, is a massive, giant logistics puzzle of being able to get all the things from place to place, including roads, boats, all the various transport types. Of course, you can build roads to mm -hmm. just increase your cart and car and I, train I speeds. Say. And yeah. I will say that the name of this game has always annoyed me because it should be Rivers and Boats or Roads and Wagons. Roads and boats, they're just, there's two, <laughs> it's yeah. like you're talking about the transportation medium or the vehicle. It's very, they're all hydrofoils. It's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's also one of those games that it just starts with a blank hex board and people are drawing on it, adding little track things and looking at a game is like, what is even, how are you? And everyone's going, shh, don't talk. Yeah, it's funny. Board Game Geek is like, it looks more like a modular kick game than anything else. Out of the <laughs> yeah. <box." laughs> Like a bunch of blank tiles and a bunch of cubes of different colors. <laughs> Conceptually, I'm fascinated that this game exists. It doesn't sound like something I would ever want to play. Yeah, I have to agree with Brian on this. Like, logistics nightmare of the board game <laughs> Absolutely, doesn't yeah. have the same ring to it. It hits a little close to home these days. Right anyway. now, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and also, can I just point out that much like mine a million, why not airplanes? Just saying. They're inelegant. You don't move like 10 by airplanes. I guess. I don't know about how of metal. 10 is delivered from place to place around the country. Mike, You're right. how can you expect to contribute meaningfully to this podcast if you don't do your research? <sighs> I'm sorry I've not done any research on the mining and transportation of the tin industry. Right. I apologize. You do know it comes from oil derricks, though. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well known. Yeah. You don't move rocks and lumber by airplanes. You don't even move board games by airplanes unless you're desperate to hit a con. Yeah. I mean, we've all been that desperate once upon yeah. a time. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yes, but none of us can afford an airplane full of board games. Fair enough. Oh. Fair enough. Next one that I wanted to talk about is, I think, an interesting spin on the pickup deliver thing. This was Genoa, or originally Traders of Genoa. Came out in 2001, designed by Rudiger Dorn from Aliyah and Ravensburger. I will point out another one of that series of board games. Yep, the laughably misnamed now Aliyah Big Box series. Ah. Genoa was a lot of fun because basically you've got a bunch of warehouses in the corners of the map. It's about a four by six map, I think. And each turn, there is like a stack of five discs and you roll to determine what space you start on. And then you basically travel from space to space orthogonally, leaving a disc behind in each space. And every space you go to, you or one of the other players can take an action in that space. And that may be going to the warehouse to pick up some supplies or going someplace to drop something off or delivering a message or whatever quest cards people have. So whoever's turn it is can basically solicit bids from the rest of the table well, I really want to go to the post office. Well, how much is it worth to you? I want to go to the spice warehouse. Well, I'll do it if you give me the pepper and you keep the salt or whatever it is. It's really neat because you're haggling around. I mean, the pickup and deliver part is pretty straightforward. You get a cube and you bring the cube to the place where the order says they want the cube. But the negotiation about where you're going and who gets to do what is, I think, the interesting bit. There was kind of a similar mechanism going on in Istanbul a few years back. The game, not the city. The only thing is that's basically each player has their set of gems that they move once for space. There's no negotiation. You just kind of decide where you need to go. So from that perspective, I find it a little less interesting, although the board's modular and there's still a lot of stuff. Istanbul's still a good game. But the sort of communal piloting of Genoa is the part that I always found really interesting about it. It's kind of interesting, the thought that you've got a pickup and delivery game where your turns are taken in tandem, mm -hmm. where you're all on the same ride. You're going together somewhere, so you're going to get to do something. Mm -hmm. But really, it goes back to that, what is it worth to you to go to this one specific place? Yeah. It's a negotiation game, so you'd probably be terrible at it, oh, but it's I mean also a lot of fun. <laughs> 
Well, and that goes just back to another general weakness of my own. I've noticed in a lot of pickup and delivery games, especially as we get into games where things that you deliver have value, especially if it's not labeled value, I'm going to be awful at it. It's okay, Mike. I got a great game for you. Merchants of Venus. The price is labeled on all the chits. Oh, excellent. (laughs) Excellent. So I don't have to determine what the value of anything is. Now it's just math. It's just math. I can do math. I know. Just so you don't get an idea that pickup and deliver is all about goods, there has been a thread. And going back older, I think Mayfair did a lot of pickup and deliver games, which are fantasy themed. And it's it's a pretty classic adventure game style where you have to get a quest and the quest tells you to go here, pick up your sword, and then go here and use the sword to kill the beast of Bodmin, etc. Or you pick up a quest card, you know, it sends you to a couple places, you finish the quest, objects to finish so many quests. There was a Xanth game, some Thieves World games, and again, Mayfair did a lot of these and did a lot of these fantasy games. But this style, I think, hit its peak um or at least a good peak at return of the heroes uh 2003 loot stepanot was his diner and uh published by pegasus spiele this game isn't well known and really really needs to be well known basically you set up the board randomly it's a big four by four set of giant gorgeous uh, uh square tiles with the single hottest claron mo- is it claron hair stuff what do you what do you do? Clairol. Clairol? Clairol, yeah. <laughs> Total Clairol fashion model dwarf you'll ever see in <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, that beard is so lush. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. No, when you find the, the female dwarf. Anyway, at the edge of most of these tiles are little locks that represent quests and monsters you have to kill. And at the center are quests that will give you experience for delivering certain things to those. But you have to get past the locks either by delivering something to solve the whatever's keeping the lock or whatever's guarding it or kill the monster. So you have level up and, you know, adding dice and magic powers to be able to fight monsters. So combine those two things and you're wandering around leveling up and getting stronger as you kill things, finish quests, and eventually you take on the boss and kill it and win the game. So, you know, the little talismany kind of thing mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. But they actually did three games uh, in the series. There's more than one of these. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, beyond the first Return of the Heroes, the other two are only in German, I think. Actually, the second game in the series, Under the Shadow of the Dragon, was also released in English. Since when has that stopped you, Frank? (laughs) I have them. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But they're hard to play because the pieces don't look the same because they've been pasted up. It's funny that you say that this game needs to be popular because in the mid-2000s, I caught wind of this game and it it definitely had that fantasy uh, theming going on that immediately caught my eye. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I was not able to get a copy of it. One, because I couldn't afford it, and B, because this game is just not available, even in the mid-2000s, a few years after it came out. I had a copy. I might still have it, actually. I remember getting it. (laughs) Frank showing us his female dwarf picture here. One of the things that I really liked about this game, I don't know if it was the first game that did it, but it was one of the early ones, is that you pick your character, you know, I'm playing the dwarf, and you just, if you want to play the female version, you just flip it over. I've never seen skin tight chainmail before. That's another one. <laughs> I was gonna say at, there's some least, chafing. <laughs> at least she's kind of wearing some actual armor. It's it's low cut chainmail. It's low cut. No, and it's a skirt. So I mean, I, I think she might just be going pantless under there. <laughs> okay, never mind. I take it back. That is a classic example of bad female armor. Oh, I know. Yeah. The one thing I remember about this, and this was back when I didn't have a lot of folks to play games with, so I probably played a couple solitaire games testing it out. It felt like a pick up and deliver game rather than a fantasy quest game. Because, I mean, you've got all the the dwarves and elves and magic swords and bandits and orcs and dragons and monsters, but it didn't feel like you were doing adventures. You were just like, well, I have to get this thing and take it to this space. Hmm. So it has some leveling up and that sort of thing. It just didn't really grab me the way I hoped it would. I like pickup and deliver games. So, um, okay. so I was all the theme and the fact that you have to level up and experience up your character mm-hmm. did enough for me. And I could get people to play it because leveling up trains just isn't that. <laughs> it's totally a thing if we ever get to train games. But my third level train has a cow catcher on the front of it. <laughs> my train's fifth level. Watch out. Oh, uh, you got the cow catcher 
and you've got the coal engine? No way! (sighs) Put a gigantic artillery-like on top, (laughs) and you've got Train Raider. I'm just saying. (laughs) Why does Joe's train have a rail gun on it? (laughs) What other kind of gun would a train have? I I mean, good point, good point. It's on brand. All right, Mike. Tell us about a different kind of pick up and deliver game. What if instead of goods, we were picking up and delivering people? That sounds, that like sounds really bad, Mike. <laughs> that sounds like slavery, really Mike. Isn't it called Freedom the... <laughs> the Underground Railroad? Freedom the Underground Railroad. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, but okay, okay. Here, let me try this again. What if we were playing a pickup delivery game and everything is on fire? Hmm. Ah, Dead Men Tell No Tales. <laughs> okay, we're going to be talking about uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, oh, okay. which is not necessarily a game one might think about as a pickup and delivery. This is 2011, produced by Andy Boarding and Cards and designed by Kevin Lansing. And this is, I think, one of the first co-op games I really got into. Like, I fell hard for this game. I've got all the things. Haven't played some of the newer stuff but at its core you are firefighters going into a building that is designed on a square grid and after every turn you have to basically play the fire and the fire will spread could cause new explosions and change the board and it reminds me a lot of that kind of pandemic inevitability where it's like you are just trying to stave off long enough to get what you need to get done which is in many cases getting people out of the house before they burn up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the house collapses on top of them also yes and it's great because like while while you have fire equipment your people do not so as you are moving the people around like once you pick them up and carry them you cannot go backwards through fire so you have to stop and put stuff out or find an alternative path which includes kool-aid manning your way through a wall oh yeah sometimes, which will accelerate another pathway to loss which is to collapse the building on top of everybody but i think we can all agree that this game has a the the single best pickup and delivery which is in the game there is both a cat character <laughs> and a dog character that both need saving from this house and god help any soul that does not save either <laughs> and or both of them it's true didn't one of the expansions have a goldfish too think they did oh wow they probably did (laughs) they made a a lot of them yeah i do like the idea of firemen rushing in to save a goldfish (laughs) i like this because a it's our first cooperative Mm -hmm. pickup and deliver game which is interesting the game has a lot of replayability for me and my friends that i play it with is the the fact that each of the firefighters has their own specialty Mm -hmm. you have someone that's good at like using fire extinguishing foam so they're really good at putting out fires you have someone that's a structural engineer who can repair the damage you've done to the building you've got the rescue dog who's really good at pulling people out of the burning building except he can't get through locked doors so it's a real problem sometimes open doors (laughs) does the rescue dog refuse to rescue the cat i'm just curious no no he's a good boy oh excellent (laughs) i also like it when you're firefighter gets exploded out of the building that's pretty great <laughs> and the, the game is also hyper module because all of the expansions are basically just gave modular material that you could or could not play with oh, yeah. so even included in the base game you could choose to play with the ambulance or the fire truck which is always really fun i like the fire dog sitting on the fire truck just hosing the house down <laughs> Yeah, I also like the, the alternate boards. Like, they go real crazy with it. It's like, oh, how would you like to put out fire on a second-story building? Okay, not so bad. How about you put out a fire on an airfield? Okay, a little different, a little interesting. How about a fire in a submarine? Go! That one's <laughs> yeah. hard. Yes, yes, it is. How about a skyscraper? You mean a towering inferno? Yes. <laughs> and then there's one that's like, hey, what if this building just had a basement in it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I also like the hilarious placement of the setup. A lot of times there's hazardous chemicals that if they catch fire, they explode. And the amount of times we've had hazardous chemicals sitting on a toilet is not not few. It happens like almost every game for some reason. That bedroom was where I kept my meth lab. Yep. <laughs> yes, lots of meth labs exploding spontaneously. Have you played the uh, Tragic Events expansion? It's the most recent one. It's the one where we played the hotspots. So in the the base game, there's a thing called hotspots where if you have an explosion, you'll place a little tiny token called a hotspot that makes it more likely to catch fire again in the future. Well, they've replaced that mechanic with a deck of events where just interesting things happen. And I will never play with the hotspot version again because like it's just more compelling because it's like there's almost a kind of narrative going on. And sometimes nothing happens. You're like, oh, thank God. It's the best. (laughs) 
I really like it. I don't know if it's their last expansion they're planning, but I haven't heard of a new one since. I haven't. And I know that Indie Boarding Card have moved on to some other projects. Like, they're a... They are a really great small company. And I think, are they okay. local? No, I don't think so. No. Okay. The designer's local. The designer's Kevin Lansig's local. around. Okay. They do a lot of just really great small, unassuming mm-hmm. board games. So if you're ever just out in the market for a game, check out almost anything by Indie Boarding Card. Because I don't think I've ever played a game by them where I'm like, this is bad. Yeah, when I was looking up all the expansions in here, I own all of the game. But when I was looking through all the expansions, which there are many, there was one I didn't recognize called uh, Fire Academy. Have you seen this one? Probably. I also own all the things. And it's a lot. Yeah, it's a PDF-only expansion that's a bunch of scenarios to play through. Hmm. So I was like, oh, man, now I'm itching to play those because like, they're, they're different setups and different win conditions. And I mean, I've played this game a lot. So anything that's new that I haven't seen yet, I really want to try out. Unassuming games. You know, small simple games like Aeon Z. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. No, that, right. That's right. They did do Aeon Z. Where's your Aeon giant Z. box? Of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Y'all, I, I, I broke my Kickstarter. I, I got the Aeon Z thing. Because again, because I'm just of like, course oh, you cool. did. Indie boarding card, I'm in. Here's some money. And you know what? Aeon's End continues to be one of the best run Kickstarters I've ever backed. They do have their act together for sure. I'm just like, here's, just take my money, (laughs) give me all the things, and I just, I'm confident that I will receive them as promised. I've gotten some of theirs on time. (laughs) That's ludicrous. ludicrous. Yeah. There you go. This has been our short advertisement for Indie Boarding Card. We'll expect our check soon. Going from one extreme of everything being on fire and awful to the other extreme where everything's on water and probably awful, we're going to talk about Merchants and Marauders from 2010, designed by Casper Agard and Christian Marcusen uh, by Z-Man Games. And Merchants and Marauders, you are a captain in the Caribbean faced with a choice. Are you going to just be a guy delivering goods around the Caribbean? Boring. You're making your money, earning your gold, or do you want to be a pirate captain? Sure. <laughs> Gaining bounties from countries whose ships you've sunk and sinking NPC ships and raiding other people's ships to earn glory points, which is how you win the game. I think you have to earn 10 glory points altogether. And you get it in a number of different ways. You can get it from collecting a lot of gold. So it's like a point for every 10 gold, I believe. You can go complete missions or find out rumors. You can upgrade your ship and bling it out to the biggest ship in the game. Uh, You can uh, defeat other people in combat. Uh, but ultimately, what, what kind of makes this a pickup and delivery game that was interesting to talk about today is the way that they handled their markets and the way that you earn your, your gold off of these uh, goods. So as you move around the Caribbean, there's no, multiple ports. As you go into the port, you, you see uh, from these little cards that you flip over what goods are offered in that port. The more of the same good that's offered, the less expensive that good is. So if there's, let's say, four four cards of the same good, they all cost one gold each. If there's one good of that type, it's going to cost you, let's say, three or four gold. So there's there's some scarcity marketing at play there. And then each of the different ports will have an in-demand item that they desperately want, and they will pay a lot more for. So, of course, you want to find a place that has a surplus of whatever that product might be, you know, coffee beans or whatever, and someone who desperately wants it. And if you're lucky, they're very close to each other. Uh, that doesn't seem to work out most of the time in the game, but that's kind of where the the interesting pickup and delivery mechanics are, because that's constantly changing. As that need gets fulfilled, they get replaced with a new new token indicating, hey, we now want tobacco leaves or, or whatever the good might be. Or you can just play like we normally do and just kill each other the entire time earning your foot glory that way. Yeah, merching is interesting, but fundamentally not that exciting. So people tend to go pirate. Yeah, and, and they, let's be honest, the game incentivizes it, right? You, you get to upgrade your crew, upgrade your ship, your maneuverability, your guns. I'm like, hmm, this merchant ship sure seems to have a lot of guns right now. Yeah. No, I didn't think about it, but what does that say about this topic? If there is a game that's literally like, you could do that or not. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, because I'm trying to think of any game I've ever played of Merchants and Marauders. And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anybody go for a full game as just Merchant. Yeah, because I mean, you can do that for a while. And then when everybody else is pirating, they will attack you and then you will build your ship for revenge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think 
I think maybe it's a deliberate choice on their part because like mm-hmm. they know you're so, you're gonna be so weak and helpless at the beginning that you're gonna have to trade to get your money so you can mm-hmm. upgrade your ship. So yeah. maybe it's kind of a hey, this is really a two phase game. But let's yeah, it's not like a binary thing where you have to do one or the other exclusively. Yeah, I was, I was kind of thinking about that. Like maybe this is better described as like how long can you go for merchants before you are <laughs> yeah. forced to go pirate? Right. So I guess the merching is building your engine and then uh, the engine is used to murder other people. Yeah, there you go. Speaking of murdering people with boats, I, I, I fell down a rabbit hole on YouTube watching how uh, how cannons and cannonballs worked on mm-hmm. actual uh, pirate ships. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. So there's a, a sunken ship from the, I want to say the 1600s uh, from a muse- museum called, it's the Vasa. It was like the flagship of swedish i think something like that it, it was it was their 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 big like flagship it sailed out of port it rolled badly and sank immediately mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was the titanic of warships basically. i mean yeah basically they 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 recovered uh, hilariously they had dive teams that recovered the cannons which considering the cannons weighed like a ton each is incredible for the time period yeah but in the 60s 1960s they raised it and it's in a museum now and so you can actually see this this ship anyway this museum was conducting research based off the cannons that they found and the construction of the boat, because now they know exactly how the boat was built because they have the actual boat. Yeah. They created a replica of it, created a replica of the cannon, and they're like, okay, let's see how good uh, their armoring, you know, the armor that they built in these ships was against cannonballs. Holy crap, it was complete shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, they take this thing, it's a 24-pound cannonball, and they fired it 72 times at the target to, at various distances and various strengths of black powders to simulate range every time they hit it it went right through the 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 wall of the ship would have gone right through the other side of the wall of the ship and it just like blows fragments of of wood splinters everywhere and they're like oddly enough if it hits the least armored portion of the of the boat the splinters are small enough that the uh, wool clothing that the sailors wore at the time would have actually protected them fairly well if it hit the armored sections where the ribs of the boat were actually attached, it was like giant six-foot timbers <laughs> launching through the boat, murdering everybody. They had one cannon that was a spent shell that went through the wall, bounced, hit a tree, and the tree exploded <laughs> 500 yards downrange. I was like, holy crap. But yeah, it was great. They had all this awesome slow-mo footage. You're like, oh, there's the cannon. It's this shockwave of the cannonball actually going through the things that causes all the damage. So you just see this like shockwave hit and just boom, just splinters everywhere. I'm like, oh my God. It's like, it's really fortunate for them that their accuracy was dog shit because like, <laughs> if they get hit, they're screwed. Sorry, I, I was really excited about these videos. These are great. I mean, if you want to find out more, you can tune into our Pirate Cannon podcast. <laughs> Right after our Arkham podcast comes out, Mike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Directly after. We don't have a name for it yet, so it's fine. We got some time. There's another game called Black Fleet that's more of a, again, it's more of a merchant pick up and deliver, but it does have a few merchant ships wandering around, uh, a little bit of set collection because you can turn in sets for a little more money, but also little tiny, like gorgeous little plastic ships that hold all the things. And mean. So, yeah, you can totally turn piracy on your friends and should. You definitely Mm -hmm. should. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, really simple game. I mean, it's kid available for assuming you have kids that uh, you don't mind, you know, trying to murder each other. Now, in both of those games, once you go pirate, you can't go back to being merchant. Is that right? Uh, No, I think you can because there's like different levels of bounties, and I think you can pay off the bounty in Merchants and Marauders at a specific port. I could not actually remember. Yeah. I don't know about Black. So, Jason, question for you. Could you understand the rules to Merchants and Marauders? Could I understand the rules? Yeah. Y- yes. Okay, great. Let's talk about a game where you can't understand oh, okay. the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and that is obviously High Frontier. <laughs> Designed by Philip Eklund, published by Sierra Madre Games. I was reading the rulebook to remind myself of how the pick and deliver light mechanics work in the game. And I was reminded how amazing their rulebook is. Just honestly a work of art a work of art it's just a series of formulas oh, i assume oh, so right good. okay before we go too far though uh, frank maybe you'll know this phil eklund is like a literal rocket scientist he is a literal rocket no, no, scientist it looks like it's written by a literal rocket okay. scientist it's like subsection 13a bq <laughs> a.b.q it's beautiful the, the book is beautiful the rule book is beautiful I just felt like the, this game about rocketry and f- uh, space flight being designed by a rocket scientist needed to be said. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely tell. I mean, like, so oh, like yeah. High Frontier, for those of you who haven't played it, is 
an amazing experience because it is a scientifically accurate rocket science game. And it is amazing. From a pick and deliver mechanic, functionally you're, you're taking people from Earth and you're bringing them to colonies to found colonies. And then you have to bring your ship back. And like that's really the the... Where the game is, I think, the most fascinating is you have to figure out the right amount of weight that you can put on your rocket to both get it there with all the passengers and all the cargo you need to bring for them and then get it back. And like that's the that's where the real meat of the game is like, oh, cool, you land on Venus. Well, Venus has a, a gravity of six. And so therefore, you need this much power to even get off. So therefore, you need this much. They use water as the as the fuel mechanic reaction mass reaction yeah. mass right that's like they like they hand wave some pieces of it so i, I was gonna scientifically say scientifically like, accurate you said <laughs> scientifically accurate. when joe says weight 90 percent of that is fuel yeah well i mean that's the way real rockets, yeah, that's how rockets work. Work. Yep. Mm-hmm. just for for the layman joe for the layman yeah yeah i dig the heck out of high frontier like i my, one of my favorite things about the game frankly is teaching it to someone is when you first lay out the amazing board when you lay out the expansion board, board, which goes Amazing. to Pluto Amazing. instead of just to the asteroid belt, I think. I think that's right. yeah. and, and when you laid out that board is exactly when I said, I'm never going to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> the board is gorgeous. Utterly gorgeous. Yeah. The board is not a physical or, you know, representation of the solar system. It's based on energy levels and orbits. It is based off of Lagrange points, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, Lagrange points are on there because yeah. they're they're a key point yeah. for, you know, easy transition between various yeah. gravity wells. But yeah, it's based on gravity and forces and how much energy it takes you to move to a different orbital mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. And it's projected for the entire solar system. Easy. Easy. Done. Easy. <laughs> fascinating. NASA Easy. would like to have a word. <laughs> it's totally fascinating. High Frontier. The aristocrat. The aristocrat. The aristocrat. <laughs> I feel like Joe just bike dropped. Uh, don't no, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I don't even think you should probably ever try and explain it to anyone, Joe. Just put a picture of the board out and walk away. <laughs> I mean, one of these days. We're going to play. I'm making We are play. going to kidnap Jason and Brian I got and the, force oh them to play it. Uh, I love I love Philip Eklund. Uh, they released the fourth edition and they advertised the fourth edition as the rules be easier to understand. And they are a little easier to understand. I mean, they, I mean, they like, probably could not be harder to it's understand. It's so good. So. I, I just, I love, I love Sierra Mudger games. So yeah, much. they added another giant bucket of options and rules. <laughs> I'm and so now, excited. Yeah. So yeah, I got, I got the, I got the uh, fourth edition and all the expansion. I'm excited to play it. I, and we haven't even mentioned the best part about the, the, what some of the earlier printings. I'm not sure if this isn't true for the fourth edition, but on the back of the tech tree development cards where you can get the theoretical engines that don't yet exist is an explanation of all the science behind (laughs) that thing, which is fun. See, it's educational too. Uh Uh-huh. That sounds really complicated. It is. Mike, tell us about something simpler, please. What if your airship crashed in a desert with a sentient tornado chasing you around <laughs> as you try to collect all the parts together? I'm in. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about Forbidden Desert then, which is the sequel to Forbidden Island that came out in 2013. Forbidden Desert, not Forbidden Island. This was developed by Matt Leacock and was put out by GameRate. This is, I think, a step towards a minimalism in pickup and deliver that we start to see a lot in that time. We also talked a little bit about some other simplified games that came out around then that did not make our list. But this one is, I I think these big complicated pickup and delivery games simplified down to their bare bones. Yeah. It is the the polar opposite of high frontier. (laughs) You've got (laughs) a, a modular board that is a grid of spaces that, you scatter your airship parts about and somewhere on this board is a uh, blank space. That is the sandstorm that is moving about. And you basically have to move to avoid being buried in sand while collecting all your airship parts. And then you put them all together and fly away. Yep. Bits of the board are gradually disappearing as you go. They get buried in sand. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause sandstorms. 
Yeah, it's conceptually similar to Forbidden Island. Uh, I think I like Desert a little bit better. It's got the same physicality that Forbidden Island does, which is really excellent value for money. It's really nice components in a, in a nice little tin box, which may have been mined <laughs> from an oil derrick. Like all tin? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a good solid game. It's a great introduction to those mechanics for, for newer gamers. That seems to me like it is kind of game rights milieu right like because they also produced uh sushi go which mm -hmm. is like a introduction to drafting games mm -hmm. and uh, i mean much like with indie board and card all of their games are so solidly designed and generally appealing that i can't really think of an example of a game right game that i've just been like meh on they're all like yeah this is a good fun solid game they're simple they're polished they're well put together and they have really nice components yep so what more do you need exactly it's a good store lagrange points i mean <laughs> so many how many lagrange, LaGrange points, points do you need to win all of them oh okay so let's talk about western legends y'all i'm not gonna do that voice <laughs> the whole time that'd be silly uh, <laughs> this came out from colossal games in 2018 designed by hervé lemaitre and it's a cowboy game in which you can do all sorts of cowboy -y things. You can play poker, you can have duels, you can gunfight with the sheriff, you can mine gold, you can cattle rustle. It's sort of a big point salad game where you can be on either side of the law. You may get in trouble depending on the things you do. There are a couple pick up and deliver components in it. The most obvious one is cattle. There are two ranches and a train station on the map. And if you go to one of the ranches, you can get a cattle token and then you can either take it to the train station and legitimately sell to them folks back east. Or you can take it to the other ranch and you functionally rustled it and then you illegally sell them the other guy's cattle. I don't like this game. <laughs> Why not, Mike? Because the first time we played it, that right there was my game. Except you forgot one very important detail. Those cows have to actually get to the freaking train station despite every other player trying to stop you from doing that one simple thing. <laughs> it's a competitive game uh, where everyone has guns. Hard competitive. They will try to stop you from doing things. I just wanted to take my cows to market, but no, I can't do Why that. Why not go and mine some gold and take that and sell it? That's also pick up and deliver that people will try to steal from you. Yeah, I was going to say, it's the same problem, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Fundamentally, that's the game. <laughs> yeah, the only time I played it, everyone was so distracted by the poker, I just mined my way to victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of the key, is you need to be doing something that nobody else is doing. I, I guess the, the thing that I'm going to say about this game is that this game requires a mindset, and mm -hmm. if it is, if you are not in that mindset, you are not going to have fun with this game. Mike, did you drink a lot of whiskey? I did not. Then that you're well, not in the right there mindset. You go. There's your problem. There's but your like, problem. it is one of those ones where this is this is not a game to play for, for win, and maybe that's on me. <laughs> but like, this is definitely much like Tales of the Arabian Nights. This is a game that you play for the experience. Yeah, it does have sort of a role play ish bit. Definitely you know, if, you, if you're going to be, you know, the, the shining star good guy or the low down dirty scoundrel. It's a little bit chaotic. There's a lot going on. Friend of the show, Sean, is a big fan of this game. So we've played it a few times there. It's fine. But if you are interested in cowboys and want a chance to do all the old Westy stuff, this is probably a good. Yeah, it does a good job of giving you like all the old Westy options, mm -hmm. right? You can rustle cattle, you can mine, you can yeah. get in duels, you can play poker. I don't think you can rob trains yet, which is disappointing. <laughs> so I've just been going back through and playing Red Dead Redemption Two, <laughs> which is so good. Yep. And uh, yeah, robbing trains. I was actually going to compare right? it to you that. Can rob uh, yes, you can yeah. totally rob banks. I was going to compare it to Red Dead Two because I've also recently played that game and i'm like yeah it's a good western simulator mm -hmm. sure however i am disappointed at its lack of otherworldly uh portals <laughs> that you can go in and do and fight monsters yeah they Jeez. just haven't found the the, the mines full of a uh, dark stone yet like <laughs> there are however ufos and sasquatches are there really? in red dead redemption <laughs> yeah too, oh, okay. yeah okay. and dinosaur okay. bones and mm -hmm. like a serial killer that was really and weird. a vampire like, yeah. but here's the sad part none of that's in western <laughs> legends which yeah. i argue might make that a more interesting game because it is a hyper-realistic Western simulator. Well, hyper-realistic. Pew, pew, pew. It's definitely hyper. 
<laughs> Mike, you just didn't realize you were you were role playing as the hapless rancher who I needed a not. hero to come in and save him. I did not, and, and no one was your hero. <laughs> there, no, one no one. There were no white hats in your game. Exactly. <laughs> there really weren't. Our next game is Clank, a deck building adventure game, which was in 2016, developed by Paul Dinan and published by Renegade Game Studios. And this is a press your luck meets pickup and delivery game, which, like Jason was saying earlier, I guess to some extent, all pickup and delivery games have that kind of press your luck mechanic, but this one really does bring it to the forefront. Why are y'all all shaking your heads? <laughs> some at of me? them do, some of them don't. Yeah, that's fair. All right, they're either they're either. I think I think it's reasonable to say they're either pressure luck or engine building. It's they, one of the two. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. That, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but this one, I think, definitely takes that pressure luck mechanic and just says, "What if that was the game?" <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you like zero points? <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. But you are adventurers who need to go out and find themselves a treasure before the dragon brings its wrath down upon your head. So you functionally start at the same space at the top of the board, must travel out through the world through various obstacles that might block your way using a deck of cards that you can deck build as you play. So there is very much that mechanic of like, I just shuffled poorly and could not get any of the things that I needed to be where I needed to be. But functionally, you are going out to get a treasure of which there are various values of treasure, higher values being farther away than the lower value ones. And you got to get to their space, pick them up and get back home before everything becomes terrible. That is at its heart clank. When we originally played the base game it was fine i remember not super loving it i think now that it's gotten a bunch of expansions i'd like to go back and revisit it because i do know that they had like a clank in space expansion and they've definitely iterated on that base game a lot and listeners of the podcast will know how much we love legacy games and they've produced one Made even better by the fact that it is themed entirely around Acquisitions, Inc., which I don't personally listen to, but... Yeah, but, I mean, they've got a very established world. It's very clear what you're doing. This is from the Penny Arcade folks, in case there are a few of you out there who don't know about it. This is the legacy game that we got one game into in March of 2020, (laughs) immediately before lockdown. We played again a few days ago, and we're actually probably going to play some more this afternoon. And I miss it. It is a fun game. We have to make Mike put stickers, enormous stickers that have to be very <laughs> precisely positioned on the map. I got to say, Renegade Games, I think, is now vying for largest sticker in a legacy game. <laughs> I mean, for a while, Pandemic Season 2 had that honor. Mm-hmm. These it's might real close. Be... We might have to do some measurements. You pull out the stickers and we're like, okay, this is you've been training montage for this sticker your entire gaming career. <laughs> the one complaint I have is that a lot of their stickers for the map pieces are not cut quite right so there's a lot that are just off and it does drive me insane anybody has it makes it a little sad ocd that's what the sharpies are for to kind of i these are bad enough that i don't even think sharpie could save it but also there's some extra quest cards where you have to kind of go to certain places Mm -hmm. and fulfill Mm -hmm. questies Mm -hmm. that adds a little bit of like gameplay and a lot of flavor yeah i mean those quests make the game and it it could have been that we were just playing the learn how to play the game because i don't remember those existing the original plank is pretty vanilla yeah and and i think that's what i didn't like about it i think now that i've played the legacy version i have a much better opinion and like i said would like to go back and visit it because they definitely took that basic concept and turned it up to 11 and it is really good. The expansions don't really, they just add a few variations to that kind of, not enough. I think the mm. Clank Legacy is where, okay, this is good. Okay. But again, it's good because the same reason all the other Legacy games are good. Take a simple, start varying it, you know, tweak it over time, add some crazy, give it some story, and suddenly it's addictive as heck. And I don't know why. Real simple decision spaces. Like we got to one mission where it's like you could either do option A or do option B. And it was very clear how those two things would change 
Yeah. The board. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because it, it didn't try to obfuscate anything. It wasn't like, oh, God, if we do with this option, what's that going to do differently? No, it was like, nope, Here here's exactly what you're going to get. And it's always satisfying to finish the game where you're constantly adding your colored cubes to the bag of then you draw and hope the dragon doesn't attack you. Watching Mike get murdered, then emptying the bag and finding like 12 more colored cubes of Mike <laughs> after he's dead. Ah, that's very so sad. So in my defense, I've gone first in, I think, every game, and the first player does just have more cubes in the bag to begin with. So like... No, I think that dragon has a vendetta against you. I mean, yes. Down to. Yes, he definitely does. <laughs> but again, if you enjoy Clank, go check out Clank Legacy, because I think it is... Like many legacy games, just the version that I want to play from now on. Yeah, I, f- mm-hmm. I feel like if you if you play the legacy version, it's going to fire original Clank. Yeah, I just don't like. I can't see myself going back to vanilla, plain old vanilla with Clank ever again. Because like, it's like okay, it's just the the same mechanic I've done like however many times after we finished the legacy version without the fun flavor stuff. Yeah. Well, Jason, I think. I want to talk about a game where you pick up and deliver a steak to Dracula's face. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to go in his heart. You may be doing it wrong. No, it's always his face. Okay. Uh, yeah. How does he like his steak? Or if you pick up and deliver... <laughs> medium well? Yeah, medium, 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 medium well. Medium well? Medium well, yeah. Oh gosh, what is Dracula? We're a monster. Dracula is a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, to everyone in our audience, we're talking about Horrified, designed by... So Prospera Hall um, and then Michael... Movell, uh for the American Monsters Edition, uh, published by uh, Ravensburger. I want to say Mike Mulvihill correctly because I used to work with him when I did okay, some Shadowrun sure. writing. So, sure. I mean, I can't say people's names it's at fine. all. No, no, so. no. I've, I've got it. We're covered. We can move on. But also nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> and I actually want to say it's pronounced Ravensburger. Ravensburger. Yeah. Really? German. 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 Uh, it's German. German. <laughs> Ravensburger. There, I did it. Nailed it. We're very proud. We were actually kind of surprised when we were originally developing this list that uh, Horrified is a pick-up-and-deliver game. We kind of thought about it for a minute. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess it is, right? You go to spaces, you pick up these colored tokens, and then you go deliver them to the monster's face to defeat them or to some location to help defeat the monster in some uh, various mechanics. For those of you who haven't played the game, very, very straightforward, beautifully designed game. Um, you pick some number of monsters. The default is three. You'll be fighting three different monsters. The original game had like all the classic universal monsters. The new American monsters has a bunch of cryptids. For the- cryptids, functionally, <laughs> um, like the Jersey Devil or the Banshee in the Badlands Mothman. and all kinds of stuff. And poor Mothman, who was only trying to warn people of a bridge collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bigfoot. Like we we we, Bigfoot. we played it over the weekend, and uh, Bigfoot is you need to do a sliding puzzle to make a clear picture of Bigfoot, and then take a picture of him. And Bigfoot doesn't attack people; he just runs away from them. <laughs> the game is amazingly designed, extremely clever. Each of the monsters feels unique, right? They have a mechanism that really makes them sing in terms of how their mechanics work. The game is super duper simple, right? Like you're moving around. Over the course of the game, hapless villagers gets placed on the board and you have to go save them. And the way you lose the game is is by the terror level getting too high, which can cause by either a player being defeated will cause the terror level to go up or a villager being defeated. And villagers are a lot more defenseless than than a player, right? If a villager gets attacked and you roll a hit... They're defeated, and the terror level goes up, and then and you move on. Ironically, just like in Flashpoint, you rescue them by picking them up and delivering them to wherever yep, it is yep. they want to go. So. so it's got a lot of a lot of different pickup and deliver mechanics in it. It's a beautiful game, extremely well designed. Yeah, I love in the original one, a lot of the bystanders are references to the movies. Like, mm-hmm. there's literally Abbott and Costello in there, which yeah. is just <laughs> wonderful. The American monsters, I think, are are similar. I didn't recognize a lot of the bystanders when we played it. Like, there, there may be, but I'm. I'm not as familiar um, with those characters. A number sure. of them are clearly Twin Peaks references. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Makes yeah, they're sense. definitely Twin Peaks references. <laughs> you open up the box and the first thing, it's like... Something Cooper. It's yeah, like, it's like yeah. Dana Cooper, Agent right? Cooper. Agent Dana Cooper instead of Dale Cooper. And it's it has a, a lot of that mm-hmm. beautiful tongue-in-cheek that, that the first... Oh, what was on the, the back of the map? There was out there something clever on that, remember? 
So on the back of the board for the American Monsters, they have a map of the United States and kind of show you where in the United States the specific cryptid is, which for I, those of you... I think, I think even with some red yarn connecting them. It looks very, uh, you know, red yarn Did and wall. Also, I think it also gave a blurb about the About monster? each of them, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they're less familiar than the Universal Monsters. Obviously. See, educational. <laughs> yeah, I think the really interesting part of the pickup and delivery here is just how each of the monsters changes that simple mechanic of picking up a token and taking it to a place. Because some of them, like the Jersey Devil, for instance, specifically needs goats. No, that's the Chupacabra. Oh, Chupacabra. The Chupacabra specifically needs goats. You must give him goats or... Save the goats. Or save the goats no, from save, him. Yeah, save you, the goats you, you, from him. You take the goats to the goat farm to ch- lure him over and then you kill him. <laughs> right. Uh, but like you can use the non-goat tokens as food to distract him. He so eats horses too, we found. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other monsters might just treat those same tokens as numerical value. Mm-hmm. So like they, they get a lot of game out of that very simple mechanic, which is really nice. Yeah, it's super easy to, to, to learn and teach. And because there's so much variety in the in the monsters and how they interact, there's a lot of game there. And the game is usually on discount for some reason. Like, it's not hard to find a cheap version of it. And it is, is a phenomenal game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right, Jason, take us home. All right, so we'll leave the nebulous world of monsters that may or may not exist and may be just blurry in general and move to the near future. For Jason, it's been like, 10 minutes since we've talked about a train game. Could you fix that, please? <laughs> sure, Mike. There's a game that I ran into at Gen Con last year called Maglev Metro. It was released last year in 2021 and uh, designed by Ted Alsbach by Bezier Games. Bezier? Bezier. Games. It's French. I do like an Alsbach game. I think you'd really dig this one, Mike. So the idea here is you start off on a board that just has a main train station for this basically subway system you're designing. And as the game progresses, you're going to build stations that you're going to be connecting with acrylic tiles that are in your player's color. Each player has a player board that if you look at it, and I'm going to ask you to put a picture of this Mm -hmm. up, please. It looks like an absolute nightmare because it's just like, oh my God, there's too many options here. You start with a certain number of little robots. The robots are gold, silver, and brass, which really pissed me off. Like, it's copper. It's copper. Why don't you understand this? (laughs) But they're called brass in the instruction manual, if I'm remembering this correctly. And you place these robots on your player board to give you different capabilities. So if you place one into one of the things for uh, the track, you can place track pieces between stations. If you place them in the move thing, you can move your train up to, you know, two stations away instead of just one station. You can use them to refill stations with passengers to pick up. And as the game progresses, different players are going to build out different stations. Where the interesting pickup delivery mechanics come in is the fact that you can't score any points for the robots, right? They're really just there to help you fill out your board. The more of them you collect, the more capabilities you have in your board. But you can't collect any actual point passengers who are like pink, lavender, some other colors, until you've actually unlocked that on your board. So for the sake of argument, let's say, to be able to pick up and drop off pink passengers, you have to have a silver and a gold robot in that space. But you don't get that ability until you've unlocked it. Where the game was really interesting to me is you have an ability called adjust, where from all the things you've collected, if you place a guy into the adjust, you can adjust where you've placed them on your board. So respec. You're respecing, exactly. (laughs) And so like, you're constantly, you don't have enough things to cover everything because you can't collect enough people and there's just not enough of those robots in the game. But with this adjust, you're like, mm, you know, this turn, I don't need to place a, a track, track piece. I'm already connected, but I do need to ha- increase my capacity for picking up and dropping off. So I want to move these guys out of the adding track section and put them in the other section. So it's a lot of like, okay, what, what do I need to do this turn? What resources do I have? Oh, crap. I really need to get another gold guy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into the move here, and then I'm going to put it into the, the pickup here. And it's a lot of like hand-wringing and just going, oh, God, I don't have enough things to do. And as the game progresses, more and more stations get unlocked, and you can even put robots into things that earn you more points for different colors. Like, now the pink guys are worth two victory points each, or now I can score these um, these scoring cards that I was received at the beginning of the game. So it's it's one of those games that, like, it's not the easiest to teach, but I think it's really satisfying, and it's gorgeous on the, on the if you look at the pictures. Like, they're little acrylic, transparent acrylic pieces for your track, and you can't block people out. Like, you can just place the track and they actually overlap 
with a way that you can see each of them. It looks just like a subway map when you're done, which is really cool. Aesthetically, it reminds me a lot of the mini Metro games for uh, most touch devices where you are basically creating a Metro map using a point and click mechanic. And I agree, like the use of those clear overlays does end up making it look quite totally matches that classic london to mm-hmm. yes, yes. Look. yeah the yeah. components are gorgeous the little acrylic trains yeah. and the tiles and the recess boards the trains the trains are metal and clear plastic i'm like what, what why did you go so however crazy this? i am very disappointed given the name of the game that they are not magnetically suspended <laughs> above the board when you place them you know that would be a great fan deluxe made. edition <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> But yeah, um, this is one that Courtney, like, it's very rare for Courtney to stop and play a demo of a game, but apparently mm-hmm. the aesthetic appealed to him. So while he was doing that, I went and bought more D&D pre-painted minis that I shouldn't have. <laughs> but when I came back, he was still playing. I'm like, oh, maybe there's something here. So I got it for him for Christmas, and we played it, and I, I really digged it. It was... Because train games are awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> no, we that, can't that end there. That <laughs> sound that you just heard was uh, Frank high and I five. jumping up and high-fiving each other. Yeah, they're so. hanging in the midair for a while. It was really weird. <laughs> They really should come down. I mean, <laughs> uh, so does Courtney still like it? I guess he does. Question. Yeah, um, even after playing it with you. Yeah, even after playing with me, <laughs> which is a rarity. Damn. I agree. Um, but no, it's. I think what really made it fascinating to me was that adjustability because, mm-hmm. like that that was really where I was like, oh, I see where the potential for this game is. Yeah, and so it's always a constant like, here are the resources I have, and I need to place them in specific places to do what I'm trying to accomplish. I was pleasantly surprised by this one. Yeah, that adjusting thing is unusual for a train game. And the way it's implemented, it's pretty nice and clean. I may have to pick that one. Yeah, this, this looks wrong. <laughs> yeah. I definitely Ooh. want to play it before I buy yeah. it. Okay, but so I would for like everybody keeping track at home, strike one point up for Jason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our list of pick up and deliver games. Obviously, there are a ton out there that we haven't had time to talk about. But if you have ones that you think we should have mentioned or take issue with some of our definitions, then you know where to find us. Ascendaboardgames.com, our Facebook page. We occasionally have people show up on our Discord, which we have just to be kind of new and trendy. Wait a minute. We have a Discord channel? Of course we have a Discord. Mike. What? It's the 2020s. So quickly, what are folks' favorite of the pickup and delivers we've talked about? I'll go first. Everybody scrambles to look back (laughs) over the list. If we're counting Clank Legacy, I would go for that because I'm really enjoying it now that we're back into it now. I think it has a lot of interesting decisions while being a fundamentally sound basic game. And it's a lot of fun. I'm probably at Return of the Heroes or Zaya. I think Zaya is so much better than Outer Rim and Firefly and all those other space pickup and deliver games. And the designer's great. The game's really obvious in how it handles things. But honestly, I played so much Return of the Heroes. It's such a good game. I think I have to agree with Frank on this one. Like, when I want to play a pickup and delivery game, I want it to be that more chonky board game experience. Mm -hmm. So I might have to also lean towards Zaya. And even though we didn't talk about it, we kind of lumped it in with the... Uh, Merchants of Venus, which... Oh, crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I screwed up. It's Merchants of Venus. It's always Merchants of Venus. That game oh, is really good. Okay. So, like, I, either of those games, I think my favorite falls somewhere in there. Sadly, I don't think I have found my perfect pickup and delivery game yet. I mean, you haven't played Merchants of Venus yet, so... <laughs> Certainly not the copy that's here. <laughs> <laughs> it's got the right flavor. It's got ship upgrades. It's... Fun. It's got a punny name. Hey, Frank, to date. Okay. <laughs> right after we play Space Corp all the way through. Yeah, really. You guys can do that after you record the trains episode. Excellent. <laughs> Good point. Totally. For me, I don't necessarily think of this as a pickup and deliver when it's in, I think about playing it in my head, but Flashpoint Fire Rescue. I just love that game. I, I love teaching it to people who haven't played, especially people who haven't played cooperative games before. I find it's simple enough in concept and execution that they can pick it up really quickly. And it's just a, a nice way to introduce them to the concept. And then, you know, any, any game where I can play as a little rescue dog, I'm going to, I have to, <laughs> that's just a requirement. Nice. For me, it's horrified. I feel the, I have very similar feelings to Jason about horrified to see as a flashpoint by rescue. Amazing co-op game. Great to teach people. Very welcoming to anyone who wants to play it. So oh, very cool. Got a good wide variety in there, which is a sign that we're not all the hive mind yet. <laughs> So that's all we have for this month. We'll uh, talk to you folks again on April 1st. Everybody stay safe and healthy and play some games. Bye. 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 Bye Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. 
Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. You know what the best part about segues is when you point them out? Oh, it makes it <laughs> mwah, chef's kiss. Yep. Like, hey, did you see what we did there? Uh, that was clever. Uh, huh? uh, <laughs>